Okay, folks, why don't we uh, go ahead and get started? We're, we're wrapping up the American Pain Society track. Thanks for those of you who have stuck with us all day, and uh, we're excited to have uh, as our last speaker Dr. Fadel Zaidan from Wake Forest University. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about building brain resilience through mindfulness meditation. So please join me in welcoming Fadel Zaidan. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Phil and Jim. How's everybody doing? Friday night in Vegas. Woo! I am honored. I'm delighted to be here to be part of this theme at this uh, prestigious meeting. Uh, this is the first time I've been at Pain Week. I also want to uh, thank Dr. Fillingham for hand-selecting the speakers, and I I'm just really proud to be part of the whole theme with my esteemed colleagues. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's been a privilege. So mindfulness. Um, we'll get to that, but I think you guys have heard about chronic pain. Uh, it has been, I don't know, it's a thing. Um, it's been characterized as a silent epidemic, right? You've probably seen this boilerplate slide, right? So, what, 150 million Americans, 1.5 billion people worldwide suffer from chronic pain. Costs our country alone $635 billion per year in lost work productivity, medical treatment costs. And now we have, we're, we're, we're uh, in the midst of an opiate epidemic, right? A 429% increase in opiate misuse. Um, and so, it, and, and this is all related to the complexity of pain. It's constructed and modulated by a constellation of interactions between the sensory, the cognitive, the affective. So this makes it incredibly difficult to treat pain and, financial, and financially burdensome. So we need to figure something out. Ideally, we want something that's going to be non-pharmacological, fast-acting, Cost-effective, maybe, dare I say, free. Sorry, pharmaceutical companies, right? But, yeah, this is what we want. This is what would be ideal for people to be able to utilize themselves, to be able to self-regulate their own experience of pain. <clears throat> so this brings us to the world of mindfulness. And just by a show of hands, how many of you guys are familiar or with mindfulness? Uh, okay, practitioners? Okay. And are you? And how many of the clinicians are utilizing mindfulness in the clinic? Okay, that's great. Okay, well let's let's build on that. Mindfulness is merely awareness, and if you want to get fancy, non-judgmental awareness of the present moment, being able to fully experience a sensory event without adding an emotional um, or cognitive evaluation or, or, or attachment. We want to just be able to let it go. And some people are just dispositionally mindful without any kind of training. But in a traditional sense, we cultivate the state of mindfulness through mindfulness-based meditation, or we can call it mindfulness-based mental training. The idea here is that you would focus on a meditative object, usually the breath, focus on the changing sensations of your breathing. As it enters your nose, you mentally note the cool, tingling air. Follow the breath with your mind's eye, follow, uh, feeling the rise and fall of your chest and abdomen. And then as the breath comes back up, mentally noting the warm flowing air as it exits out of your nose. And seeing if you can sustain your attention here. This is shamatha, the traditional context. In the, in, okay? This is focused attention meditation. And what is believed 
to occur through this practice is enhancing the ability to control thoughts and emotions, cognitive control. Then comes Vipassana, which is more of a natural transition where we're able to non-judgmentally experience these sensations, emotions, memories, etc. And that is supposed to, in theory, enhance your ability to regulate emotions. So it's a one-two punch. Um, and so mindfulness, uh, before I get into this really quick, let's just do a brief synopsis on pain. I know we have to be done by 6.30, but I, before we get in, this is all about mechanisms, brain mechanisms. I might as well go over what, what pain in the brain looks like. Pain is processed by primary, primary afferents. Some of you guys are getting back to medical school. Um, and A-delta C fibers uh, transmit nociception to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, and then that in- nociceptive information is transmitted to the brain, where it's then uh, processed in sensory aspects of the contralateral thalamus, contralateral to the stimulation site or the site of injury, primary somatosensory cortex, secondary somatosensory cortex, into the posterior insula. So this is more sensory discrimination. Anterior insula gets into the evaluation. What's this mean? What's it mean? What's, what is this feeling? And then dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the prefrontal cortex is really where we start to evaluate the experience of what it means to me my relationship with my pain. Um, And work from my mentor has shown that the greater the intensity of a noxious stimulus, the greater the activation in this distributed neural network. And that's correlated with subjective reports, as if we're getting closer to solving the hard problem. So we do see this nice interaction between the subjective experience and neural anatomical correlations, which is great as a neuroscientist. So that was the construction of pain. What about the modulation of pain? Well, if we're talking about the cognitive modulation of pain, whether it's placebo, distraction, acupuncture, hypnosis, modulating expectations, generally all these techniques utilize a common final pathway where it's descending inhibition, where the periaqueductal gray matter right around here releases endogenous opiates or endorphins all the way down to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord And then what we see is greater activation in prefrontal areas and then deactivation of the sensory, uh, nociceptive sensory processing regions. Very fitting. But generally speaking, (coughs) excuse me, endogenous opioids are at play here. That's why we're basically primed for opiate addiction. We've evolved to feel less pain as a function of opiate release. Now back to mindfulness. This isn't really new news here. Uh, For thousands of years, contemplatives have said that the practice of mindfulness can significantly attenuate the experience of pain. In the Salata Sutta, which is basically a a Buddhist scripture, if you will, called the dart, it says that when the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, i.e. the non-meditator, is touched by a painful feeling, he worries and grieves, laments and weeps, and is distraught. It's as if the man is pierced by two darts, a physical and a mental dart, which is fascinating because this is a few thousand years old, but we do have two distinct neural systems that process sensory affective, the medial and lateral systems, uh, vice versa. Lateral sensory, medial is more affective evaluation. It goes on to say, but in the case of a well-taught disciple, i.e. a meditator, when he is touched by a painful feeling, he will not be distraught. It's one kind of feeling he experiences, a bodily one, but not a mental feeling. It's as if the man were pierced by the first dart, but not the second dart. So hang on to that. We're going to get back to this. Now, we don't have time necessarily to you know, meditate in caves 
and uh, go to retreat centers for months on end to develop our minds and you know be at one with everything. We have jobs, we have families, um, and so we live in this drive-through society where we want things quick and easy. Um, we want you know our our laundry done within an hour. Uh, we have diets where you can lose 10 pounds in three days without dying. You have, you know, eight-minute abs. These things are attractive to Westerners. So, and, and you know, in the, in, and you all can know this in the pain management context, if it's going to take a couple of months for something to work, then a patient's just going to take an opiate or something else, right? They want something quick and easy. So this is for the last 20 years or so now, or maybe almost 20 years. Um, we've been developing and testing and, and trying to at least validate or assess the effects of a very brief mindfulness-based intervention where people meditate for three to four days for 20 minutes a day. And the idea is just to teach them how to meditate to see if they can utilize this technique in real time to acutely attenuate pain, to use it right away. And we found that this technique can significantly reduce anxiety, depression, mood, blood pressure, and other health outcomes. I'm going to get to resilience, I promise, but this is really kind of the precursor to all this. How does mental training and the mindfulness-based mental training impact our health, impact the way we look at our daily life? One way of understanding this is by, understanding, is by looking at mechanisms. We know that this technique can make you feel less pain, but how does it work? Can we disentangle and isolate the pieces that work within the context of mindfulness and apply that in a tailored intervention? What we do in our laboratories, we produce the feeling of pain. Usually we look at healthy folks. Um, we try not to, at this stage of the game, um, get into some of the comorbid issues that arise from a chronic pain situation. We really want a cleaner aspect, and, and I understand the limitations of that, but just bear with me. We use visual analog scales where we look at pain intensity and pain unpleasantness. Uh, zero is no pain, 10 is worst pain imaginable. And we use this thermal probe and we place it on the back of the leg and we stimulate them at 122 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 seconds on and off for five minutes. I promise you it does not tickle. In our first study, we recruited 15 healthy people without prior meditation experience. They underwent four days of mindfulness-based training like the one I described a bit earlier. And we assessed brain activation with an emerging fMRI technique called perfusion fMRI, arterial spin labeling. This is not like the traditional bold we feel it's more appropriate to study mindfulness meditation with this technique because it provides a direct quantifiable measurement of cerebral blood flow and allows us to control for respiration-related confounds that arise from a breathing-based practice. So these are the images of a meditating individual. These are the first images of a meditating individual, but collapse across 15 people. We see widespread activation of the anterior cingulate cortex, a brain region associated with uh, the cognitive and affective uh, control of pain. Uh, bilateral activation of the ventral striatum. These are some of the, um, I hate to say this word, reward centers, but it is an area that is associated with uh, releasing uh, high concentrations of dopamine. Uh, bilateral orbital frontal cortex. This is a brain region right behind your eyeballs. This is, uh, this is associated with uh, appraisals, higher order judgments, changing the context, the meaning of a sensory event. And then primary bilateral activation in primary somatosensory cortex corresponding to the nose and mouth. And why would that be activated? Because they're focusing on the breath. Yes, amazingly, these people did what we asked them to do in the scanner. 
And we find that mindfulness significantly reduces pain intensity by 40%, pain unpleasantness by 57% when compared to rest. And to put this into perspective, utilizing the same scales, using the same heat paradigm, we found that one clinical dose of morphine reduces pain by 21%. Okay? And the brain results were incredibly interesting, if you don't mind me saying so. This is S1 corresponding to the leg where we stimulated them. Primary somatosensory cortex associated with not only processing the intensity of a, of a stimulus, but the location. While they were at rest during noxious heat, this place, this area was firing on gangbusters. But when they were meditating, it was no longer detectable, suggesting that at least one way that meditation reduces pain is by reducing the salience of ascending nociceptive information. We ran some regression analyses where we took people's pain ratings and regressed them to their own individual brain activation. And we found that greater activation in the right anterior insula predicted greater reductions in pain intensity. Now the right anterior insula specifically lateralized to the right is related to processing interception, awareness of the body, which is remarkably fitting with mindfulness, if you will. Rostral ACC, the front aspect of the anterior cingulate cortex, was also associated with analgesia. And this is, again, a brain region related to, just you, we see this in placebo and expectations, hypnosis. This area is generally associated with the cognitive modulation of pain. Well, we were able to also see that the OFC, the greater activation during meditation here, greater activation here was associated with uh, lower affective dimension of pain. And this is arguably one of my favorite findings. Mindfulness deactivates the thalamus. And the greater the deactivation, the greater the analgesia. Now, the thalamus. Nothing from the body can enter the brain without going through the thalamus first, except for the sense of smell. It is the gatekeeper in one way or another. And what mindfulness is seemingly doing is closing the gate on ascending nociception, uh, which is really interesting because this area would be highly active and even innocuous touch, but especially during painful touch. So we'll get into this. So the moral of the story here is mindfulness doesn't reduce pain through just one mechanism that does multiple pathways for pain relief. Now, we've seen this huge surge in mindfulness-based uh, research. Um, it is an incredibly hot topic. When I started this research in 1999, there were you know, handful of papers being published, and now we're, we've seen exponential increase in mindfulness-based publication. It's an incredibly hot topic, which is great, I guess. Um, and, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, we, we just, I just don't want to get carried away with the findings, okay? I, well, and we'll get to the drinking the Kool-Aid. But, um, and now it's really popular in mainstream um, in culture, right? It's on the cover of Time magazine where, you know, Women, pretty women are meditating on covers, and then the zenith of all popular culture, right? Anderson Cooper is now meditating on TV. We did it. Uh, and, but so this is a photo I took in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and this is a, if you've ever traveled to Southeast Asia, this is a very common sight, where people are just walking down the street, and you see these um, Tibet, uh, Buddhist monks. This woman gave them offerings, food, da -da -da, um, uh, water, and in return they get blessings. And I was wondering, A, should we be studying these monks and translating them to the general public? I mean, they're walking around like religious deities. They're unemployed. They live in monasteries. Um, they don't have sex. They don't get married. Take that as you will, right? 
So I don't know about the generalizability about them. Surely we could see the capacity of the human condition by studying them, but I don't know if it's translatable to us, if you will. And then what about placebo? What if just the notion of you meditating is enough for you to feel analgesia? All pharmaceutical trials, all interventions, all therapies that are going to be promoted by you guys as clinicians have to go through multiple phases of clinical trials that are placebo-controlled. So why aren't we doing the same thing with mindfulness? Well, we did. We worked on that. Um, and so we wanted to see, is mindfulness just a placebo? We randomly assigned people to a four-day mindfulness intervention, similar to the one I described earlier, a four-day placebo conditioning group, four-day sham mindfulness meditation group, and a four-day book listening group. I'll go over all of these. Over 625 individually conducted experimental sessions, which rendered me to be follically challenged. <clears throat> so again, we used the same, uh, we used the same VAS scale. Um, we increased the level of noxious heat, and we got a brand new scanner. We doubled our magnet size at Wake Forest from 1.5 Tesla to 3 Tesla. So let's see if we could reproduce our results, which is actually a big issue right now in neuroscience and, neuros and sciences in general. Can we reproduce our effects, or is there just a general regression to the mean? Placebo group. What we did was uh, we told uh, our subjects that we were testing the effects of an experimental cream called lidocaine, and the reason that this form of lidocaine is experimental is because the more applications, the greater the analgesia. Was that too fast? We're good? Okay. This is the way we presented it. It was really petroleum jelly. We had a white lab coat on, blue medical gloves. We're really into deception in our lab. Uh, <laughs> and so we blasted them at 49 degrees in the back of the left leg. We applied the cream, left it on for 10 minutes, removed the cream, and then covertly reduced the temperature to 48 degrees. Session two, same thing, but this time to 47. Session three, same thing. And in session four, we reduced the temperature to 46.5 after applying and removing the cream. Why would we do that? To lead our participants to believe that A, the cream worked, and B, that its effects got stronger over time. And then when they come back into the scanner after the intervention, we apply and remove the cream, and then ramp the temperature back up to 49 degrees, and voila, that's how you measure placebo. Sham mindfulness meditation. The idea here is just to lead people to think that they're practicing mindfulness when in reality they are not. They are taught to sit with a straight posture, keep your eyes closed, and every two to three minutes, take a deep breath as we sit here in mindfulness meditation. They are not taught the explicit instructions to focus on the breath, and I think the most important piece, to acknowledge discursive sensory events as momentary, fleeting, letting them go without further judgment, and coming back to the breath. You're in the mindfulness group, Close your eyes, straight posture, take a deep breath, so we're controlling for everything, including respiration, and even the time spent giving instructions. The control group was listening to the natural history of Selborne across four days, and some have argued that this is a pain manipulation in itself. <laughs> and this was done just to control for facilitator attention and the times that elapsed in the other interventions. So first thing, we found that only the mindfulness group significantly increased in mindfulness. As you can see here, the sham group didn't go up at all. And well, placebo just makes you less mindful, I guess. Uh, and, but importantly, all of our cognitive manipulations were significantly effective at reducing pain intensity when compared to the control and rest, but mindfulness was more effective than placebo. The cream and the sham intervention. The same is true for the affective component of pain. All the interventions were effective. Mindfulness was more effective than the rest of the groups, but check out the sham group, 
Mind you, this clinical dose is about 21%. So while the unpleasantness side went down 9%, the affective component, which I feel is the more important one, went down 24%. So maybe this isn't such a bad intervention. Maybe just telling people that they're meditating and taking deep breaths can make them feel better. It's okay. The idea is to alleviate suffering, to make them feel less pain. Who cares how they get there? Unless it's opiates, right? <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so this is a busy slide, but the moral of the story here is we replicated our findings from the first study. We found the same brain regions that predicted analgesia during mindfulness were borne out in this study as well. Different group, different scanner, um, similar methodologies. This is the first study to use uh, perfusion fMRI to uh, capture the placebo response. And we basically replicated the, the, the majority of the research where we see bilateral dorsolateral uh, prefrontal cortex, greater deactivation. This is the blue, I'm sorry. The blue is deactivation and the red is activation. And there's the z-score values. Um, so the greater um, the deactivation of contralateral sensory processing regions, the greater the analgesia during placebo. Nothing significant came out as far as regression goes with sham mindfulness meditation. They had greater activation in the thalamus, deactivation of the ACC, which was unique, uh, activation of S1 of the nose. So they were focusing on the breath one way or another, but nothing was significant as far as the regression modeling, except for respiration. The, mind, the sham group felt less pain as a function of lower respiration rate. But this is our fifth study where we've seen that mindfulness-based analgesia is independent of changes of respiration. They both go down in respiration rate. Okay? So this illustrates a potential top-down regulation of pain through mindfulness and maybe something more bottom-up, maybe something more vagal, autonomic through, through sham intervention. Uh, bummer. This is... Okay. Sorry, uh, well, okay, there you go. So we came up with a theory with how mindfulness may work after brief interventions. We think that what's happening is, um, hopefully this will give you a seizure, um, that the orbital frontal cortex, is, has, there's a direct neuroanatomical highway to the thalamus. And there's these thin layers of neurons in the thalamus called the thalamic reticular nuclei. And they're activated by executive shifts in attention, and they're inhibitory in nature. So when they're activated, they actually inhibit a bunch of other brain regions. Specifically, we believe there's a great a, a one-way one road straight to S1, primary somatosensory cortex. So what we think's happened is OFC is downregulating the thalamus, which then reduces the elaboration of nociceptive information throughout the brain. We think that there's some unique reappraisal processes involved here with mindfulness, where there is pain being experienced, but they're able to just let it go. To, to just come back to the breath and, and, and just make it a momentary fleeting experience. Okay. Now, let's get into resilience. That's three, four days. The idea here is, hey, maybe you could recommend this technique to your patients. Um, we are cultivating more robust objective data that shows that there, there could be analgesia that is produced after just a couple of days. But how much training is required to produce lasting effects? Well, Josh Grant and Pierre Rainville published a study in 2009 that found that long, lifelong meditators feel less pain than age-matched controls. Not, even, not when they're meditating, just period. They required a significantly higher level of thermal stimulation temperatures 
to feel the same amount of pain as age-matched controls. It's a beautiful paper, really well written, so I, I would recommend reading it if you're into this kind of thing. He found that in a follow-up that meditation experience and pain-related activation was correlated with years of experience. In other words, the greater the meditation experience, the greater the deactivation of the DLPFC and the dorsal anterior cingulate mm -hmm. cortex. What's this mean? The second dart, remember the story? Goes away, and I'll tell you why. The red are sensory. There's the thalamus, S2, posterior insula. They're fully experiencing the first dart. But the appraisal regions, the dorsal lateral PFC, ACC, rostral ACC, the areas associated with evaluating the experience are deactivated, as if there's a decoupling between the sensory and the evaluation. The second dart is diminished. Pretty cool, huh? This is after extensive bouts of training. Tim Gard with Sarah uh, Lazar at Harvard found something similar, that there was greater deactivation in the inferior, parietal, uh, inferior prefrontal cortex during noxious heat and meditation in long-term practitioners. Thousands of hours. Chris Brown and Anthony Jones in Manchester, uh, I think Chris is now in Cambridge, found that these long-term practitioners felt less pain by exhibiting lower EEG, uh, how do I say this, EEG correlates of anticipation of pain. In other words, their thesis statement is that mindfulness reduces pain by reducing the expectation of an impending noxious stimulus, which makes sense. You're in the present moment. Why would you be looking forward to the pain that's coming? And so they found a beautiful direct correlation, not only with the subjective report of expectations, but also EEG correlates. This is very, you know, it's too small to read this, but EEG correlates of expectations, which is cool. So this gives, again, more rise to the notion that there is some kind of resilience that is cultivated as a function of training. We still don't know how much yet, but I, we are working on it. So what we think is happening is that mindfulness-based analgesia is shifting from a reappraisal process into a no appraisal process. Where after just a couple of days you're experiencing pain, okay, it's momentary, it's fleeting, it doesn't mean anything to me, I'm gonna let it go, I'm gonna come back to the breath, I'm gonna come back to the breath, I'm gonna let it go, etc. It's more effortful, it's more active. But then the state develops into a trait where the individual is able to just experience the sensation for whatever it is and then let go of subsequent evaluations. So this would be longer lasting. We see these as trait changes, where they're not actually meditating. We see these responses. So what about chronic pain? What are the analgesic mechanisms supporting mindfulness-based chronic pain relief? Well, Dr. Phil and Jim um, presented some work this morning from Churkin et al. Uh, there's some work from Natalia Marone and, and Pittsburgh. And we're seeing brilliant papers being published in JAMA Psychiatry. JAMA Internal Medicine, JAMA, there's Churkin, two Churkin papers in JAMA. There's a follow-up now that just came out. And a mindfulness-based stress reduction program, an eight-week program, significantly reduces chronic low back pain across a diverse set of populations. Even when compared to CBT, the results are similar. The effect sizes are similar. Churkin did show that the, steep of the steepness, the slope of analgesia was quicker for the mindfulness intervention, but that was not significant per se. But there's one clear distinction here. Mindfulness is taught to be self-regulatory, where CBT 
kind of uses you guys. So the patient may be dependent on you, right? I mean, it's always helpful to have a mindfulness instructor to kind of take care of the bumps and bruises that might arise, no pun intended. But they, the practitioner becomes more self-reliant. So, but we still don't know how it works. We, don't, we do know that the clinical, there is clinical efficacy for brief meditation training and that you guys may be more inclined to recommend it. And then if the benefits of meditation can be realized almost immediately, then they may continue to practice more. I just want to check time because I think I'm almost wrapping up. Great. So, we, um, one of my, my favorite papers was published by the late and great uh, Don Price, who just recently passed. Uh, this was published in 1987. And he looked at the two dimensions of pain, sensory versus affective. Okay? And whether it's myofascial pain, upper, lower back pain, cancer pain, the unpleasantness aspect of pain is always generally significantly higher than the sensory component of pain. Okay? Labor pain is different. The intensity is significantly higher than the unpleasantness. So there's something going on here. It's the context. It's the evaluation. It's the relationship of one's sensory experience with themselves. The comorbidity arises from these two dimensions. And now we've seen across any expertise level, whether it's three days of training to 30,000 hours of training, that the sensory dimension of pain is not as impacted by the affective dimension of pain. And I'm sure all of you would agree that your patients are going to probably going to be in pain for the, you know a large portion of their life, or maybe some of that time the rest of their lives. But it's what they do with that experience. It's how it impacts their quality of life that really matters, in my opinion. So what we did was we ran a pilot study in five subjects with chronic low back pain, and we are really interested in dosage. How much training is is effective. And so we wrote a grant, and this is the pilot data we submitted with the grant, and we're about to pilot this in the scanner. And these are chronic low back pain patients, uh, radicular pain, and what we employed was the passive straight leg race test, the bilateral straight leg race test, which is generally an assessment of mobility and severity. Well, we actually in- used it to induce pain in these patients. I know, sorry. Um, and then we taught them how to meditate, and we wanted to see if we can ex- acutely attenuate the experience of this ecologically valid approach to pain. And we found that after four days of training and four more days of training, we saw an 85% reduction in intensity and unpleasantness. They were able to utilize this technique almost immediately, and we're about to do this study in the scanner. Importantly, we found that daily pain, their daily pain, went down by 70% on average. Mind you, this is not a placebo-controlled trial. It's not even a controlled trial at all, so it could totally be placebo. That's why we need to do more work on this. One of the outcomes that we were really surprised about was sleep. We had patients coming in crying, saying, Every t- I haven't slept like this in 10 years. I have no idea what the mechanism is there. But generally, they would aggravate their injury when they would roll over in bed. And for some reason, they were able to sleep through the night. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out, hopefully. So that was an outcome we weren't even measuring. It was the qualitative data that pointed to something that something like sleep that was really impacting them. So in closing, um, 
I recently met with the Dalai Lama in Mongolia in November, and I, you know I'm a, the brief meditation guy, and I said, um, so hey, Dalai Lama, um, <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> how much training is needed uh, for us to feel less pain through meditation? And he goes, ha 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 ha, lifetime. I was like, not really what's going for there, H H, but. Um, Anyways, I, I cut out a lot of uh, a couple of the slides as you can see from from the figures, but I'm happy to take any questions or have a discussion. We cut out a little early. Um, we were told to be out of here um, by a certain period of time. And I didn't want to keep you guys, but before I go any further, let me acknowledge some people. Uh, this was my postdoctoral mentor, Bob Coghill, John McAfee, who recently retired, our MRI physicist, my uh, PhD student, and a very brave study participants. This work cannot be done without the NCCIH, National Center for Complementary Integrative Health, the Mind and Life Institute, uh, our own Center for Integrative Medicine, who our own uh, director, Remy Kota, is here. Remy, thank you for showing up. I had no idea you were coming. Uh, they funded a lot of our pilot work that really helped us get this work off. Again, mind you, mindfulness back in the day was kind of frou-frou stuff, so we really wanted to take a very objective, robust approach to studying this technique. And don't drink the Kool-Aid, okay? We don't know how this really works. So anyways, um, yep, okay, so thank you so much for your time. Yes? What, is, what are my thoughts on the effects of mindfulness on acute pain? Can you be more specific, um, like noxious heat acute pain or... Ah, yes. That's a great question. Uh, we're working on that, actually. And mindfulness may prove to be more of a buffer to promote resilience, to reduce vulnerability, to, to developing chronification or the comorbidity that may exacerbate the experience of pain. Um, but at this stage of... Of, of where we are in the research, I would say that as an adjunctive therapy, it's going to be the most effective. Unless we could find a really user-friendly way of, of um, utilizing this technique, I think it's going to significantly reduce anxiety. I think it's significantly going to lower a negative mood. And it may change the way that somebody deals with the after effects of a surgery. Um, we, we are seeing accumulating evidence of this. There has been a paper that just came out that find that mindfulness-based interventions are one of the most cost-effective ways of reducing pain. Um, on average, there was a paper that was published that found that mindfulness interventions reduces hospital stays by, by 1.5 days, $972 on average. How it works in that context, I don't know. I wish I did. Let me add something. Um, we just, I was just unblinded on a study um, and I'm going to present this work uh, next, next year at APS, American Pain Society, where we found that a slow breathing intervention, slow rhythmic breathing, uh, from let's say 15 breaths a minute to 10, was more effective than mindfulness and sham mindfulness at reducing pain. Three or four days of training. Not significantly, but better. So, and that's a super easy 
technique to utilize, especially for folks that are suffering from pain that have fibromyalgia, MS, and really cognitive debilitating or taxing types of pain conditions. And then maybe we add the mindfulness piece. We also found that mindfulness and slow breathing do not engage endogenous opiates to reduce pain. They're bypassing the opiate system. So the first paper was published in the Journal of Neuroscience last year, and in the second paper, I just got them blinded on, um, we found that these two techniques do not engage endogenous opiates. There's something else happening, which is great, because if, you, if mindfulness did utilize endogenous opiates, then you would have to meditate like the Dalai Lama to match the amount of opiates that a patient is taking from cross-tolerance effects. We're bypassing that. Okay. Yes, sir? Great question. Is it like riding a bike or is it like lifting weights? It's like lifting weights. There might be an aha moment that arises, right? But generally speaking, it's the use it or lose it principle. There is no difference, in my opinion, than mental training to physical training. You keep lifting your biceps, you get stronger and stronger and stronger. Over time, you just become strong. I feel like the same is true for mindfulness. Yes, sir. Thank you, that was great. Thank you so much. I am. So let me talk. Uh, let me translate that for you. <laughs> the notion is with mindfulness, the, the, the catchphrase is non judgmental awareness of the present moment. Smriti, or the traditional interpretation of mindfulness, is awareness. Period. No other adjectives. We're writing a book. We just, we we're about to write a book on mindfulness and pain, Josh Grant and I. And we wrote the first four chapters with the non-judgmental piece. We threw them away. We're changing back to the original context to just look at awareness. So yes, we are changing it. John Kabat-Zinn just wrote a commentary about this, how he thinks he got it all wrong. He's also now adding compassion to it, that compassion is a part of mindfulness. But I think that's also adding something to it. So pure mindfulness is awareness. What we're doing to it is adding a secondary reappraisal component that may or may not be more helpful. I think that, especially for psychotic disorders or uh, some, some psychological disorders, that too much awareness could be a problem, right? So, but that's a, that's a, that's a deep question. <laughs> yes? So transcendental meditation was a huge thing in the 70s. And what happened was the scientists became the practitioners. They went to Maharashi University, and then all of a sudden the Transcendental University was publishing all the work, and then it just turned into this Kool-Aid drinking science factory. Um, and it's mantra-based. And it's very religious. And that could be problematic. I live in the southeast. I live in North Carolina in Winston-Salem. You can't really say these things. You can't really do a mantra-based type of practice for the majority of people. The transcendental meditators? TM versus mindfulness? Mindfulness, I mean, I'm a little biased. I think mindfulness is more effective. 
TM has this notion of instant bliss, whatever that means, right? That you can transcend almost instantaneously. That's problematic. Okay, there's no real mechanism there. So it's inherently, to me, a placebo plus hypnosis-ish. So it's not an active... There, mindfulness is not easy. It's a disciplined type of practice. There is no, like, ah, it just changes, that's it. No, it takes work. It takes time. With TM, it's a little different. Now, there are, there are thousands of types of meditation. Um, I am sticking with mindfulness because I am seeing a more proactive, real-time change in the experience of pain versus something more passive, like a hypnosis or other types of kind of mantra-based bells, sounds, smell type of meditation. But I've, I'd like to be, you know, I'd like to, how do, I don't really know. So it's, it's hard to say. Thank you. Okay, we got a lot. Um, let's start with here and walk backwards, I guess. Yes. Yes. M-A-R-C, Mark. M-A-R-C, UCLA. Mindfulness Awareness Research Center. UCLA. Google it. They have free guided mindfulness meditations that are very similar, if not parallel, what we did here. Um, they're brilliant. They go from five minutes to 40 minutes to just bells. I recommend them to everyone. They're bona fide and they're free. Downloadable and streamable. M-A-R-C. M is in mother, A is in apple, R is in Ricardo, C is in cat. <laughs> UCLA, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, um, so great question. Um, so we did um, uh, three and then three more. Um, session. 20 minutes, yes. The, the study that we're going to pilot is going to be, um, we're going to scan people at baseline, then after three days, after six days, after nine days, and after 12 days of training. And we're going to look at dosage, behaviorally and neural through neural mechanisms to really get at, and I still want to keep it within the context of a brief training format. You know? No, 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 no. It, 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 we tailor it to the person's schedule. And some have argued that the space in between the sessions can be more helpful for, for the patients to digest and apply what they've learned. And we explicitly tell them not to practice at home because we don't want, to, we don't want that variability. In a, in a clinical setting, you would tell them to, but as a neuroscientist, I, you know, I don't want the guy sitting or girl sitting for 20 hours a day meditating versus the person that says, yeah, I meditated four hours a day, but they were lying, right? So I'd rather, I just say, just don't do it at home. Yes? In this, no. In other studies that we're doing at Wake, yes. And would one be more beneficial than the other for musculoskeletal pain? Of course. For chronic low back pain, in the JAMA papers, they actually produced adverse safety events. They aggravated the back. So I would tailor it to the population. None of this stuff's going to be this ubiquitous blanket of efficacy. We really have to get better at tailoring the intervention, which, as we talked about, can be incredibly difficult and time-consuming. Yes, sir?
Right now, yes, this is kind of tailored to the Whole Foods shopper. <laughs> but we're getting better at it, at making it more user-friendly. We're, we're, we're learning from some of the mistakes. For one, don't call it meditation. Call it mental training. For two, make it super easy, slow breathing, and then add the appraisal pieces. And three, if you're going to teach meditation, and it's all about quieting the mind, make sure the instructor just stops talking and actually lets them meditate. I can't even tell you how many times I've been led in meditation. And I'm like, how am I supposed to quiet my mind if you won't shut up? It's like, you're so loud right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, you, and then, you, yes, sir. Tons uh, that I would recommend. Yes, there, there, there's tons out there. That, that it's being inundated with a bunch of stuff. Everyone's using Headspace right now. Um, Calm is really good. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, Headspace is, I think, verbose. Calm may be okay. Uh, the idea is once you t give them the instructions, it's then the instructions are redundant. Focus on the breath. Acknowledge discursive events. Let it go of that appraisal. Come back to the breath. Just like the redundancy of lifting weights. You just got to do it. So getting attached to the apps themselves also can be problematic, I think. Okay, you're in there. Yes, sir. You got great people there with, with Marone and, and Dave Creswell and Ajay now is there with Sans. Yeah, you guys are doing awesome stuff. But, but people are very open to like Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> amazingly, they are so proud. And they don't want to be zonked out on the drugs. They just want their lives back. And they really, and they're disciplined. They've been, they, they're entrained to be disciplined in whatever they put their mind to. So mindfulness actually matches really well with that cohort. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, and I'll tell you why. I am a basic scientist. And I could look at efficacy and clin you know, clinical outcomes. That's for you guys. I'm more interested in how it works with the mechanics. So the more layers I start adding, the more that that could be the effect. That could be the effect. That could be the effect. You know, with the traditional mindfulness intervention, there's yoga, there's walking meditation, there's body scan meditation. It, there's eating meditation, right? And then there's compassion. And then there's a silent retreat sometimes, one or two days. What how do we know which piece of that intervention is actually analgesic? So really just want to start from scratch and build it up. Now, I've been to many retreats, and the food is exceptional. <laughs> and the environment is divine. And I don't care if I, if I didn't meditate one second, I'm going to feel better because of the diet and the environment. And I'm not at work. I'm in this kind of, you know, I'm in a retreat setting. Literally retreating from anything that's happening in my life. So, of course, that's going to be beneficial, independent of mindfulness. So, as a mechanistic scientist, it's incredibly important to, to be aware of those things and try to control for them as best as possible. Thank you all so much. I'm grateful. <laughs>